invite you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at several different chapters here. There's a, a phrase out there that says leadership rises and falls, or organizations rather, rise and fall on leadership. Countries rise and fall on leadership. Churches rise and fall on leadership. And, and it's a statement that, that's, that goes to the power of influence that one person or, or a group of people can have literally can change the course of a nation. Just a few, if not just one person. And often you can trace the health the growth of an organization or movement or church back to a person. It rises and falls on leadership. There was a meeting in 1948 with uh, four guys. Uh, there was a leader, and it was his friends, and, and they sat down in this room, and he said, I, I want to do this. I, I, wanna, I want you guys, we're all going to break up, go on our own way for about an hour, and I want you to think through this. They're about ready to launch a ministry. And they said, he said, I want you to think about the ways that it's not done well. Like, what's going on out there with other people who do the same ministry, and how are they doing it and really messing it up so that when we come back together and we do this as we start off, we're going to do it the right way. And so they went off for an hour, and then they came back, and he says it was eerie how similar their lists were. And what ended up happening was they named that meeting and that time out of that, their, their list, and actually they call it the Modesto Manifesto because it was down in Modesto, California. And the Manifesto was what guided the Billy Graham Association for the next 50-plus years. It was him and his three closest friends, and they were talking about what does an evangelistic ministry look like? What should it be like? And they had four principles out of there. They would handle their money with integrity. They would be men of purity, above reproach. Their speech, they would never tear down other ministries, other organizations. They would always seek to affirm. And then their accomplishments, they would never exaggerate anything. They would always be truthful. And they ended up becoming what we know now as this world-famous organization and ministry, really, that presidents around the world sought. Countries around the world opened their doors to our country, our presidents. It's amazing. And it came out of this manifesto, we as leaders are going to lead the right way. And we're going to lead the way that would honor God the most. Organizations rise and fall on leadership. And the stories of when organizations fall because of leadership are, are awful. Ezekiel is a story of leaders that have completely failed. And when you read through Ezekiel, what becomes very clear is God is angry at the leadership. Like, he singles out the leadership more than any. In fact, he only comes at Israel generically as the people, as a nation. But he specifically goes after the leadership. Hmm. Oh, that hurt. I want to read chapter 8. 
We're going to look at several of these passages. God comes after the leadership. In chapter 8, there's four abominations. This word just, it just leaps off the page. Abominations is the theme of chapter 8, and it's the abominations that the leadership is committing. So in verse 3, about halfway down, almost to verse 4, it says that Ezekiel was brought to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And, and behold, the glory of the Lord of the Israel was there, like the vision I saw in the valley. So you, got, you have this idol with the glory of the Lord. And, and God says to him, Son of man, lift up your eyes towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north. And behold, north of the altar gate, and in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary? But you'll see greater abominations. So that's number one. He's got three more. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, I went inside the temple. So this is all in the temple. And I saw there engraved on the wall all around every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. He said, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? each in his room of pictures, and they say, ah, God can't see us here, right? The Lord doesn't see us. The Lord's forsaken the land. And he said to me, you will see greater abominations than this. Two more. Verse 14, he brought me to the house of the entrance of the north uh, gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, you, you see this? You're going to see still greater abominations. And then he says, he brought him into the inner court of the house of the Lord. Behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple, backs to the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun, the very sun that God had created. Four abominations. One was an idol at the north gate, which typically was about protection from the enemies coming in. The next abomination, and he said, idol, the image of jealousy, well, that comes out of Exodus chapter 20, where he gives the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other idol before me, no graven image, no, no image like a beast, an animal, whatever, because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. So the idol is an image of jealousy that provokes God to jealousy. And then you have this other moment where you see all these pictures of animals that are now they've they've written on the walls of the temple and they're worshiping all these animals and they're supposed to, supposedly supposed to ward off the demonic presence which actually brought in the demonic into the temple and you see these women weeping what they were doing was weeping to the babylonian god tammuz who was the god of the underworld and, and praying that he would bless their life and give them fertility and then you see these 25 men who were worshiping, obviously, the sun. And the presence of God is in the temple while this is happening. And God is saying, this is an abomination. This is what the leaders have done. And he goes on, chapter 11, he goes on to now attack the false, or actually the wicked counselors is, is what he calls them. 
And so he's at the entrance of the gateway. There were 25 men. I saw them, among them, Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, princes of the people. So now you're talking about these are princes. These are men who have power and authority, who give counsel to the king, who probably could influence and do influence the king. And they're sitting outside the east gate because that's where you did visits, and that's where politics happened and, and all decision-making. And they're sitting out there. And they're giving, he says, look at these men. They devise iniquity in verse 2. Give wicked counsel on the city. And, and they say, the time's not near to build houses. The city's the cauldron and we're the meat. And what does that mean? Well, it's a sarcastic comment about their time. And it really was a sarcastic comment towards the people in exile. So if you don't know, Israel had had a civil war. Israel, northern kingdom, Southern kingdom, northern kingdom had already been destroyed 200 years before Ezekiel, and now the southern kingdom was being destroyed, had already been conquered by Babylon, and a lot of people had been exiled to Babylon. And so this comment is about them saying, uh, you know, it's not time to build. Well, they're actually referring to them because, you know, oh, poor them. They're over there in Babylon. They're never going to build. It's sarcastic, like, yeah, but we're in the land. We're going to rebuild. We'll be fine. And then the whole thing, we're, we're the meat in the pot. And it's the whole thing of out of the frying pan into the fire, right? We say that. So they're saying, oh, well, at least we're not in the fire like they are over in exile. Like they don't even get it. We're the meat in the pot. Like we're the stew. And God's ticked off. Like, are you kidding me? Like there's, there's nothing about this. There's, there's no path in this where this is good. And yet that's how they're slanting the whole thing. And he goes on to accuse them. And he says, I know what's come to your mind in verse 6. You've multiplied the slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. Verse 12, he says, you've not walked in my statutes nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. I mean, they acted like the mafia. They were, they were calling out hits. They were killing people. I mean, this is evil, evil people. These are the princes of Israel. Completely abandoning any call to lead in a godly manner. Over in verse 12, or chapter, uh, not verse 12, chapter um, 13, he goes on and now he attacks the false prophets. And he says this, thus says the Lord in verse 3, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals. Foxes, uh, more than half the translations say foxes, so it doesn't matter. Jackal foxes among the ruins. O Israel, you have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, like they play the God card, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fill, fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? And he goes on in verse 10, he says, precisely because they have misled my people saying, peace, when there is no peace. Because the, when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. What was happening was they were coming along, and, and, and they were foxes. They were jackals. And I don't know if you've ever hung out with a fox. They skulk around at night. They're never out in the open in the middle of daylight. They always go at night, and they, oh, and they always attack and kill at night. We just lost uh, six chickens 
uh, about three months ago. I'm pretty sure it's a fox. We don't see any raccoons. I've seen foxes. Our electric fence always on, and then somehow it got unplugged. They know. I don't know how they know, but foxes know. And wouldn't you know it, they got in there, killed a couple chickens. We found, you know, a pile of feathers, and then the next day a couple more, and I don't know. By the end, we lost six. I'm slow on the math. Probably should have figured out how to get the electric fence going. But foxes, they hunt. They on the, they're on the prowl, and they just kill the innocent. And these prophets were just going around. They were, they were saying, oh, I got the God card. God told me. God told me. And, and, and they're manipulating people. They're using this and spiritually abusing their power. They're going around telling people, peace, 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 telling people what they want to hear right? Just give them what they want to hear rather than these people are building a wall that's going to fall apart, but they won't do it. Let's put some whitewash on it. Oh, it looks so strong. They won't speak the truth that God is even revealing that says, no, you guys are under judgment. Repent. But it wasn't just the prophets. Verse 12 or verse 17, it's the prophetesses as well. Daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts, prophesy against them. Say, thus says the Lord, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature and the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You've profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread putting to death souls who should not die, keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people. And he goes on and says in verse 22, you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him and you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. The women were doing it too. Disheartening the righteous. So the righteous are coming and and looking for truth, looking for a word from the Lord, even possibly saying this ought not to be, and they're they're standing against the righteous and disheartening the righteous. Sucking the air out of the room for anyone who would look at this and go, this is wrong. And there's, there's verses continually throughout Ezekiel where the righteous are groaning. The righteous are overwhelmed by what they see. And yet these people, they'll do it for bread, they'll do it for whatever. Chapter 14, final time, he accuses the leaders. He says, then in verse 1, uh, uh, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and said before me, or is that before me? They're going to come to him and inquire of the Lord, like, what does God have to say to us, Ezekiel? And the word of the Lord came to me, and God says, I'll tell you what to say. Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I, should I let these guys even come talk to me? What's interesting about these elders, everyone else was a prophecy and a vision of what was happening in Jerusalem. Chapter 14, these elders, they're in Babylon. They have gone through the judgment of God. They have been exiled. And here they stand. They don't have any idols over there. Or here they sit. They haven't learned a thing. They still got idols. They still don't really believe God is it. The leaders. Still hedging their bets. Still bringing something in. And it's just a big, it's just a big show 
oh, we got to go to Ezekiel, right? Can you tell us what God says? Like, they don't believe it. It's a joke. Organizations rise and fall on leaders. And when God's leaders fail to lead his people, he gets angry. He gets really angry. Chapter 9, there's a Passover. We celebrate the Passover. We will here coming up in April with Christ and the Passover lamb. There's another Passover in the Bible. It's, it's this one. If you read in chapter 9, God sends a, a, an angel. Actually, it's these four, I think, or six that go, and they kill all these people. They pass over the land. They kill so many people, Ezekiel's afraid God's going to wipe out the entire nation in judgment. In chapter 10, God leaves Israel because of what the leaders did. Like, you remember chapter 1, this unbelievable story of God's glory and trying to describe what his, his presence is like? Well, chapter 10, it's all those descriptions again, only he's now leaving the land. He's done. He's gone. God's presence had been over Israel since 1300 B.C. It was now 590, 600 B.C., what, 800 years? And now he's gone. He leaves. Chapter 11, this one guy that got mentioned twice, one of the leaders that got mentioned twice, that's a bad thing. You, like, you don't want to be mentioned specifically in the judgments of God, and this guy gets it twice. And in the middle of the vision, Ezekiel sees that God takes his life. He kills him in judgment. Chapter 13, he says, I'm going to tear it all down, everything you've built. I'm going to take away your influence. I mean, this is what he says. I'm going to strip you of everyone and everything. And he says this. He says, I'm going to take your name off the list. Like there's a registry for those who are part of Israel. He says, you're out. You're not even on the list anymore. Your family line is gone from the list. Why does God single out leadership? I think it's obvious. I think it's often the conversations we have because the destruction of ungodly leadership stretches and has such a wide impact. And we have stories, even here, some of you have stories of being under leaders of spiritual abuse, like significant abuse. You have stories where you've seen leaders wreck lives in churches and organizations. I think part of this is God is wanting to be very clear. I do see it. I see everything done in secret with these leaders. I do see it. And there will be a day of accounting. And, and so why is God so upset? I think there's, a, there's two big obvious points. One is, 
When he puts someone into leadership, especially when we're talking spiritual leadership, he gives them the right and the authorization to use his name, to speak on behalf of his name, which is a huge, huge gift. Right. So he gave these elders, these counselors, these prophets, these prophetesses, these priests, the power and authority to use his name. They were able to say, God says this. God is leading this way. God is telling us this. This is how we see God moving right now. And, they could, and he said, you can do this. And, and even today, he still does this. He gives spiritual authority the right. It's staggering influence. It's staggering authority to use his name to lead forward. And when it's abused, he gets angry. But he puts warnings in Scripture. Jesus, you know, it was a story about how he's giving money. And it's like this, you know, this owner gave his managers this and this and this, or servants this and this, and it was about money at certain amounts each one gave. But the principle he said at the end, to whom much is given, much is required. And it's the same principle that carries over into leadership. To whom much is given, much is required. There will be accountability. God speaks to us through James, and he says, don't, just understand this. He says, actually, not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a warning in Scripture. If you lead spiritually people, you have signed up for a strict, accountability that's more than the average person. You're on the hook for it. There's no going around like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know. No, this is what happens. You sign up for a stricter accountability. There is more expected of a leader. John Piper says it's the, the principle of knowing what to do brings greater accountability. And if a person allows themselves or seeks to become a leader or teacher or counselor and claims in moments to know what God wants everyone to do or how to move forward, they are saying, follow me, listen to me, right? Because I know what God wants to do. And in that brings a stricter level of accountability. And every leader, every person, man or woman, is on the hook for it. There's just no way you get off of it. You will be held accountable. And I want to say that today because I think sometimes we look at, at life and we see people get away with it, leaders get away with it, and we see stuff happen and we go, well, what is God going to do? And God sees it all. He does see it all. And I know some of you are thinking, well, wow, how, how am I ever going to become a leader? It, it doesn't say be perfect. It never says that here. Every leader is going to be perfect. I expect perfection out of every leader. Like that's, it doesn't say that at all. And there's moments where you see leaders fail, stumble, in the New Testament even. It, it's the ability to have someone come along and say, hey, you have stumbled and hold, hold the mirror up and say, repent. And, and if, the leader, if the leader repents, if the leader confesses, repents, and goes forward, great. That's, that's the Christian life, right? Great, fantastic. 
if the leader refuses to, now you've got a problem. If the leader refuses to listen to those who are righteous, like what you see here even in Ezekiel, and starts to, to discourage the righteous from standing for truth and being in front of them saying, don't go down this road, the leader will be held accountable. And, and it's crossing a line. No leader is perfect. There isn't. So the reason God is so angry is, one, because he has given them the right to use it and they abused it. The other reason is he's so angry is because he commands Israel to submit and he commands those who follow him to submit to authorities, governing authorities. This commandment, by its very nature, puts the follower in a place of submission and vulnerability. It does. It makes us vulnerable to those who we follow because what do we do? We have to submit. We have to trust. We give the benefit of the doubt. And that can create incredible power imbalance and abuse and destruction. And it's the same for today. It's so difficult to go against leaders, and God made that that way. He got so angry when Israel would rebel against the spiritual leaders. He got mad, opened up the ground, swallowed, I don't know, was it? It was a couple grand or 10 or 15,000 people at once because of their rebellion. He hates rebellion. And so when he sees people submitting, and in that vulnerability being taken advantage of, he gets so mad. I think these are some of the things God wants us to walk out with as we go. First of all, if you've been a part of something or you've, you've been around something where you're seeing spiritual leadership destroy things and you're like, God, what are you doing? Don't ever say God doesn't see this and God isn't acting. We just sing a song, even though I don't see it, even though I don't feel it. I'm telling you right now, God sees it. And the spiritual leadership will be held accountable. They will. You have to be rock solid on that. Also, don't ever follow a spiritual leader who mixes idolatry, any other faith system, any other religion, occult, philosophy, I'm talking about the context of the church. When you get into the secular world, right, I mean, that can't be, you can't hold them to that standard, but in the church, anybody, any leader that is pulling in some other faith system, religion, occult, philosophy, a secular philosophy into Christianity, you don't follow them. You confront them, and if they don't turn, you do not follow them. You just don't. Another piece, and this is why we stress this a lot here, is get yourself equipped. We offer the theology class. I know it could be intimidating, but maybe over the next five or six years, you take a class at a time, and you start to understand how do I keep my gate down and make sure that who I'm following is actually preaching the truth, is actually grounded in Christ. 
another piece is this membership thing. It, it's not just a, a civic thing, like, oh, we're all joining something. There's, there's power in this thing, and God holds, holds the membership responsible for the health of the spiritual leadership of this church. Come December, they're going to vote. And, and we always laugh about this. Um, when things are going good, never, nobody's ever at congregational meetings. I, not, I don't say nobody, but it's right, it's the exaggeration, right? Nobody ever comes. But when something's going really bad, the room's packed, right? If something's going down that's awful, everybody comes. and like, what's going on? But when it's all good, it's like, yeah, they get it. No, need you there. And if you aren't a member, I need you part of this. We need you part of this. Because this is what helps protect this church. There was a time back in the 90s, in the 90s, here at this church, there was a power play at a congregational meeting. And nobody knew what was going on. The healthy ones were all of a sudden were like, everybody's looking around like, is, is what I think going on going on? And they're all looking at each other. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of stood up straight and was like, well, this ain't happening. Not on my watch. And they voted. You, you can, you, the people who were here, some of them know that, that moment where they said, no way, and they guarded the leadership. If they hadn't have been there, the story could have been different. This is a role to play. And, and here's the, the, the last thing I just want to say. Um, some of you have been a part of a church where you were hurt, deeply wounded by spiritual leadership. And it, it wasn't in a godly way. It was in an ungodly manner. Because sometimes spiritual leadership will wound people, but it'll be for the right reason because it is standing for truth and it is speaking truth into lives. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about abusive spiritual leadership that destroys churches and people. And I just want to say to you, and some of you have been a part of that, you, you maybe are testing out church again for the first time, or you've been on the outside watching this Christian leaders mess it up, and you're like, why? And, and you're trying to figure out whether you want to come to this. And, and if you have been hurt by the church, I just want to say, and this is going to be, it's hard. How do you do this? But I want to just stand in the place of those people and just say, I'm really sorry. This should never have happened. It just shouldn't. And, and I don't know what you've gone through. I really am sorry. What I hope is that God could heal you. And what I want to encourage you to do is a couple things. One, leave vengeance to the Lord. Leave it to the Lord. Forgive. I don't know how you're going to do that. Only you and Christ can make that journey, but you need to forgive. And then somewhere in there, you've got to figure out have you created a new way of living where you refuse to submit now? It's too dangerous to. Or it's too dangerous to submit or you're just so ticked off. You just have that rebellion inside of you like no one is going to tell me what to do. Either way that goes, it's not good. It's toxic. And God, only God can do this. God is telling you, you've got to let that go. And you're going to have to trust again and follow. Church, we've had a, we've had a great run. 
uh, these last 17 years and even before I got here when the leadership, the, the leadership of this church was broken and praying before we ever got here. And we've had a fantastic run. But it doesn't come by accident. It comes in prayer and it comes as the body of Christ is vigilant about protecting the spiritual leadership. It does. It's as much on you as it is on us to protect the office of leadership, the elders, the pastoral staff, those who would serve in the deacon and deaconess, those who teach classes. It's, it's, It's on us to make sure that we are always guarding that spiritual influence and leadership. It's critical. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, I, just, I do thank you for this church and the way you have um, pulled men and women into places of influence to teach, to disciple, and, and the culture of health and the value of your word and integrity. I just pray, God, you would continue to protect our church, protect the leadership. Lord, would we continue to be a place for people to heal, to grow? You could draw them in. It would be a a place, Lord, that you would continue to use to honor you. Amen.